Our first reading is from Proverbs. It's actually chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline and don't resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And our second reading today is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This is God's word. And uh, let me add my welcome. My name's uh, Matt Fuller. Lovely to see you if you're uh, a church family. Uh, one or two back just this week from uh, from holidays. Great to see you. And if you're visiting as well, it's very lovely to have you with us. Let's pray together as we uh, begin. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who has ever kept your commands perfectly. We thank you that in knowing him, we can know forgiveness and you perfectly. We uh, pray that uh, he would be our teacher uh, this morning. As we come to look at these verses, simple, complicated verses, uh, would he be our teacher so that we would know how to live wisely to the honor of your name? Amen. We made of uh, chapter three, it's all very simple, isn't it? Things such as verse 7, fear the Lord, shun evil, this will bring health to your body, nourishment to your bones. It's very straightforward. Honour the Lord with your wealth, verse 9, and your barns will be filled to overflowing, your vats will brim over with new wine. Very simple, very straightforward. 
Go and do likewise. Amen. How about that? I hope you'd be unhappy with that. Because life isn't quite that straightforward, is it? I mean, at first glance, these verses would appear to mock some people. Uh, one of the evening congregation, a young woman in the evening, forced into hospital on Monday, suspected heart attack. She's a fabulous servant of the Lord. She's wonderful, outstanding Christian woman who fears the Lord and shuns evil. And what does she do? She reads verses 7 and 8. Or life may be complicated for you at the moment. Would you make of verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him. He'll make your path straight. It'll be obvious how to live. You need to be careful, because otherwise you say, well, actually, life is complicated. Does that mean I'm faithless? Uh, I'm out of work at the moment. Is that because I don't trust in the Lord enough? If I just push the trustometer up a little few more gears, then I'll... I think we know we need a bit more work than that. It's not quite so simple. We can't take these verses and simply treat them as a contract. We keep our obligations. There are promises upon the other side, and God will uh, fulfill, certainly within the term specified of 48 hours. We can't treat them in that sort of way, and we know that. So let's just spend a little bit of time, before we really get onto the text of chapter 3, thinking about them, these these promises... I need to think a little bit more. Now first, I mean, the Bible is not naive. I guess we would recognize that. The other wisdom books of, um, even in this collection in the Old Testament are very obvious on that. If you were here last year, or 18 months or so ago, when we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, much more obvious that life is complicated. So what, just one little example, Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 2. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad. Those who honour the Lord, those who do not. With the good man, as so the sinner. Death overtakes them all. There's another Bible writer, just another, you know, one book further on in the Bible saying, well, hold on a minute, it doesn't matter if you do good or do bad, we all die, what's the point? There's a realism there. We just turn simply to the book of Job and you've got 42 chapters debunking the idea that if you do the right thing, life always goes well. A wonderfully righteous man suffering terribly. So the rest of the Bible is quite clear. It's not quite as obvious as perhaps this first glance may be. Let me say three little things just from Proverbs about the nature of these promises. And hopefully these will be useful as we read through the book generally, but certainly on this chapter three. Three things to say. These promises here, they are, first thing, they're typically true. These are typically true. So honouring the maker's instructions for our life will generally make us healthier and wealthier. Those who work hard and are sober-minded generally do better than those who can't be bothered to do any work and abuse their bodies. Generally that is true. We know that. There are plenty of proverbs that would emphasize that sort of typically true element. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 4, the sluggard craves and gets nothing. The desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. It's just typically true, isn't it? If you work hard at something, you, you might get it. If you lie in bed all day long, you don't. It's just typically true. Yet these are not always true. We do need to factor in 
this is a fallen world. It's not a perfect world. And there are natural problems with the world. There is sin in the hearts of mankind so that it doesn't always work this way. A silly example. Uh, over Christmas, the, the week after Christmas, uh, we had a, a tour on the roads of the UK visiting various friends and relatives. And uh, one set of friends we were visiting in Salisbury, they'd moved house, we didn't know where they were, but by the wonders of modern technology, you just tap the postcode into sat-nav, ta-da, there it is. Now, I don't know about uh, yours, if you have such a thing. Our sat-nav on our car is good. Generally, if you've, the, the commands of the lady are wise. And generally, if we follow the commands of the lady, our paths are straight. And our journey is good. Generally speaking, typically. Unless, of course, the country is flooded. And the plains of Salisbury are plainly covered with water. And then you, so you drive along and turn left at the next year, super. Hmm. There's a big sign up saying flooded road. Do you know what? I think I'll ignore the lady right now, and uh, it just doesn't quite work. And life is like that. These, these are all true, but in a fallen world, in a flooded world, sometimes you're driving along the path, and it's, you can't go down there. There's an obstacle. It doesn't quite work in a fallen world. So these are typically true, would be the first thing to say. A second thing, even within this book, there are counter-proverbs. There are counter-proverbs, even in the book. So the, the, this book of Proverbs, there's no naivety there. I mean, there are many, many, but uh, perhaps most obvious are the better-than-proverbs. There are a number of proverbs that run like this. There's better this than that. Uh, here's just a few examples of the better-than-proverbs. So, uh, better to live, sorry, better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. You see the point? Even in this world, it's quite possible that you live righteously and have only a little. And it's quite possible that some people will live unjustly and have a lot. Just, that's just true, he says, in this world. There's no naivety. That sometimes happens. Or similarly, better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. So the good guys can be oppressed. The bad guys can have all the money. That happens in this world. But, choose to do the right thing. Or, one other little one, there's many of these, but better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. So, you are, you are, you know, it's quite possible to live in a desert happily, and that's better than, you know, do you see what they're saying? Life isn't always straightforward. Even in the book of Proverbs, it's not saying there's no slot machine here. Put in right living, out comes a smooth life. No, no, no. It doesn't always work like that. Uh, so third little thing to say. So um, these are typically true. There are counter-proverbs that recognize that. But third little thing, these are ultimately true. So the book of Proverbs does speak of a future that outlasts death. A future hope that relativizes even what we have here and now. So, for example, uh, chapter 10, verse 30, the righteous will never be uprooted, but the wicked will not remain in the land. It's a long-term perspective. 
or even more clear, perhaps, something like uh, 23.17, do not let your heart envy sinners. Always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. So again, very clear. In this life, you can do the right thing and suffer. But don't panic about that, because there is a future hope. There is a day of justice, a day of judgment that will make everything right even when it doesn't go smoothly in this world. So even within the book of Proverbs, it's clear that God will sometimes develop wisdom in his people by causing them to suffer now for the sake of righteousness while they trust to a future hope. And that's part of how we grow in wisdom trusting in the hope of eternal life and therefore being prepared that things don't work out even when we do, we do the right thing. So these typically true, what we're looking at now in, in chapter 3, and the writer really wants us to live this way. Typically true, not always true in the book of Proverbs, ultimately true, ultimately true in the next life. Okay, uh, let's look at then at chapter 3. It's very, um, it's fairly obvious little pattern to chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. The odd verses have the commands or the instructions. The even verses have the motivations or promises. And chapter 3, I guess he's saying, all things being equal, here is the best way to be rewarded here and now. Brackets. Oh, and, and trusting the Lord is always the right thing to do because the reward, reward in the future is, is wonderful. Three things then, three things that are suggested that uh, uh, we must do to, I mean there are many, but let me break it down this way, three things to gain the reward from wisdom. First then, internalize the Lord's character, verses one to four. We need to internalize the Lord's character. Does that make sense? Uh, Let me read it, verse one. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them round your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you'll win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Now the Father's teaching here, verse 1, appears to be synonymous with love and faithfulness. Verse 3. Because this is wisdom that's to be internalized. We said last week, here is wisdom that changes your character. It's not just information you you have in your head. It changes you. So what are we told to do? Well, uh, look at just look at the verbs. It's very simple. Don't forget verse one. Keep verse one. Bind round neck verse three. Write on the tablet of your heart. Lots of uh, metaphors. But what is it? They're all making the same sort of point uh, culturally. It's quite a good thing. You take your valuables and bind them round your neck. You see at some points in Scripture, Genesis 38, Judah binds his signet ring on a little rope round his neck. People still do it, don't they? If you don't have a pocket, sometimes people have their keys around their neck. Keep them close to you. We might say, zip it up in your pocket. It's close to you and it's safe. Keep wisdom very near you. Write on your heart, verse 3. Sounds a little bit graphic. I guess it's saying, etch it upon your inner being. Now, we're looking, not looking at chapter 2 or the details of chapter 2. Uh, those looking at these in their midweek groups will do that. But just look across. What does it mean to write 
these commands on the tablet of your heart. I think, again, chapter 2, the first six verses, I'm just going to read them. They, they really help, helped me with this. It's both our work and God's work. So again, chapter 2, My son, if you accept my words, store up my commands, turn your ear to wisdom, apply your heart to understanding. If you call out for insight, cry aloud for understanding. If you look for it as for silver, search for it as for hidden treasure. Active, active, active. Pursue, dig, dig in the ground. Go for wisdom. Verse 5, Then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. Very interesting, that little combination. As you pursue wisdom, what do you get? Verse 5, you get God himself. And verse 6, wisdom is a gift. You can't unravel that. In one sense, we'd like to pick out the logic. But the writer is saying, our task is to pursue wisdom. Chase it. And we meet the Lord when we do that. And he changes us seems to be what's suggested. So our task is to internalize it, meditate upon the commands of the Lord, the teaching, think of hard about it. I guess it's fairly obvious what that means. You've just got to keep at it. Years ago, a decade ago, I was uh, doing a second degree, then a theology degree, and I was determined I was going to get some language inside of me, so to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. So I had these vocab and grammar cards everywhere, one or two students studying such a thing will still have those cards all over the place. It was pink for Greek and white for Hebrew. I don't know why it just was. And um, these cards went with me everywhere. So on the tube, you'd whip them out because I was determined to drive this language into my head. You'd whip them out in a cafe, whip them out in the bath. Always again, whip them out. Uh, don't drop them to my wife Kerry's dismay. The little toilet we had, there was vocab plastered around the inside. Um, uh, I was determined to sort of grind these things, to meditate everywhere I went, to put them in my head. And it kind of worked for 10 years. These things, I ground them into my head. 10 years on. So fresh to my memory, as perhaps once they were. It's fair to say the language is rust a little bit. And so I take, I think that's what's going on here, really. When he says, Verse uh, chapter 3, verse 4, sorry, verse 3. Write love and faithfulness on the tablet of your heart. This is by meditating upon the commands of the Lord. Letting them sort of dwell round, you meditate them, think hard, what do they mean? And God changes your character. But you ought to keep at it. It's not something you conquer age 25, 30, and then you're done. You've got the certificate on the wall. You never need to do it again. You need to keep on. You need to walk with the Lord. And he changes you. Keep internalizing his commands, meeting him so you develop love and faithfulness. The motivation, well, it's very simple, verse 4. Then you'll win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Always true? No, but typically true. Yeah, you'd say typically true, wouldn't you? That in the sight of man, if you're known as someone as who is faithful, steadfast in their love, you generally win respect. If you deliver on time, you're faithful. If you can keep confidences, people trust you generally. You win good favor with man. Not always, of course. Not always with man, but certainly always with God. We're to internalize the Lord's character. Second little thing, if I can summarize it this way, verses 5 to 10. 
Trust the Lord's direction. Strong promises you get here in verses 5 to 10. We're to trust the Lord's direction. So verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, he'll make your path straight. Life is very smooth. We mentioned these. Verse 8, you'll be healthy. Verse 10, you'll be wealthy. Now I, I take it that even, even here in these verses, it's implicit that this is not easy to do. So verse 5, trust the Lord. You have to exercise faith here. I mean, if it was very obvious, if everyone you ever met who was a Christian was a millionaire and drove a Rolls Royce, it wouldn't take a lot of faith, really, to trust in the Lord. You, know, you meet someone, you know, you know, hello, where did you make all your money? Well, I was a pauper living on the streets. I became a Christian, and the next day I was a multi-millionaire and driving this car. It's amazing, really. What about you? Where did you make all your money? Well, I was working as a school teacher. I quite enjoyed that. But then I became a Christian, and I became a multi-millionaire overnight. And everyone you ever met, the story was the same. It wouldn't require a great deal of trust, would it, to become a Christian? It's obvious, and obviously in your self-interest to do so. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say, observe the extraordinary affluence of everyone who trusts in who everyone who calls himself belonging to the Lord, it's trust. Faith is going to be required here. Because trusting or following the Lord's ways, they don't always seem to be in our self-interest. Sometimes we can see, okay, to do what the Lord says, I'll be disadvantaged. Why would I do that? Trust me, he says. These little decisions come all the time, don't they? A few weeks ago, got a quote on some work to do on the house. But of course, the chap says, "Yeah, there's two, yeah, two, two prices, Gov. Uh, there's that one with the invoice, or there's that one for cash." You know, it's normal. That's what people do. And of course, everything in you, well, part of, not everything, but a large part of you is very much drawn to the cheaper, the smaller number. It's a smaller number. It's to my advantage to take the smaller number. Of course, it is. Trust in the Lord. Don't lean upon your own understanding. What he's saying here is not that there's a problem with thinking. Of course there's no problem with thinking. This is not ruling out uh, uh, thinking, it's just ruling out self-sufficiency. Verse 5. Do you see the contrast? Trust the Lord, not your own understanding. Or verse 7. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Don't proudly think you know better than God. Easy fool yourself. We're always easy to fool ourselves, can't we? Lord, if I saved that money on the painting of the house, I could give it to you. We're easy fool ourselves. Trust me, he says. Do the right thing. Because verse 6, it's quite broad. All your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Um, what, what about, you know, okay, in the big decisions of life, Lord, obviously I'll honor you, obviously in the big ones, but the small things, you, you don't really care about them, do you? All your ways. Acknowledge him. All your ways. Um, verses 9 and 10, they apply that to our wealth as well. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Because, of course, that's, that is one of the areas where it's easy to think we know better than the Lord, because he doesn't know the details of mortgage payments and things like that. He's omniscient, 
apart from my life and my finances. It's easy to, to think in those sort of terms. But honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Just the earliest and the best. The extra virgin olive oil is the most expensive because it's, you know, it's the first, the best stuff. Of course, to do this, if you're a farmer, honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops is risky. So whatever it is, it's um, the end of June and, you know, the first things are ready to harvest and you give them to the Lord. But what if it rains torrentially and you're not able to get the rest of the harvest in, in July? Much better to get it all in and then give some to the Lord when you, you know, when you make sure you're safe. You say, no, trust me. Trust me with the first fruits, with the best stuff, with what comes first. Years ago, uh, I went to Morocco, and I was traveling around on my own, uh, and uh, for a while I stayed, it was slightly bizarre, I stayed in this little town of Adar, uh, and ended up staying with a family. I met the, 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 sort of the, the, the patriarch of the family, we got talking, and uh, he invited me to come and stay. So I stayed with his family for a week and ate with them, they were very generous, but I worked in their shop and I was kind of novelty item, novelty week, you know, oh, look at, you know, look at this strange man. Uh, and so... Uh, it was a fun time. I got four four offers of marriage in that week. It was quite. <laughs> Why is that funny? The uh, uh, yes, well, but um, the very strange thing was meal times because meal times, all the men would sit around this massive tagine dish, and so you'd get sort of six men would sit around with their bread and dip their bread and chat away and eat. And after about half an hour, we'd all uh, be sated, and most of the stuff was gone. And then it was taken, and the women sat round. And they got what was left. And of course, for me, that was, it was embarrassing. It was awkward. It was just wrong. It was humiliating. And the writer said, don't do that to the Lord. Don't just take for yourself and give him a little bit. Honor him. Honor him with your money. Give him the first fruits. Strong motivation, of course, again, verse 10. Then your barns will be overflowing. The Lord will reward a hundredfold. And uh, we'll, we'll look specifically at this later on but uh, in, the, in the term. But, but many, other, many other proverbs deliver that same paradoxical truth. That giving away is the way to gain more. Extraordinary. We'll have to look at that later in the term. But there's one of the obvious areas we think we know better than the Lord's. But verses 5 to 10, trust the Lord's direction. Not your own wisdom. Trust his. He knows better. He will reward. A third thing then, verses 11 and 12, submit to the Lord's discipline. Verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. Now, what are verses 1 to 10? These feel a little bit like a cup of cold water. I mean, verses 1 to 10, I mean, what you worked out, it's a, it's a little nuance. It's fairly straightforward. Do this, you get that. Do this, you get that. And then, oh, but don't resent the Lord's discipline. It's, ooh, it's a little bit disjunctive with the mood, isn't it? And yet I think um, it's very clear, this is all one section. So it's topped and tailed, chapter 3, verse 1, my son, don't forget. Uh, chapters, verses 11 and 12, my son, sort of sandwiching 
uh, this particular section. You get different themes coming up from verse 13. And so I take it here, the presumption seems to be of verse 11, that the Son has not obeyed the commands of verses 1, 3, 5, 7, 9. And consequently, the Lord will send chastisement, discipline, upon the one who doesn't obey. That's quite a big issue. Let me say two things. The first is, uh, once it's tangential, but uh, the first is, is not all suffering is chastisement in the Bible. You need to be very clear on that. Not all suffering is chastisement, discipline. Now, some is. You get some obvious examples. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul, as an apostle, can say, some of you are sick. It's because of the way you're treating others in church. And he draws a direct line between the two. But it's very rare you get that sort of straight line being drawn. And lots of suffering is for different reasons. So perhaps one obvious example would be that of the Lord Jesus. Never did a thing wrong. Always obeyed his Father perfectly. You can read though in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and, and um, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. So Jesus suffered, obviously. You read that in his life. But the writer of the Hebrews suffered in order to be made perfect. But it's not discipline, because he was never disobedient. He had to endure suffering to be perfected for the task as saviour. But it is, I don't know how you want to tell it, general suffering. It's not chastisement for incorrect behaviour. So it's clear biblically that not all suffering is chastisement. Obvious question. Okay, I'm suffering at the moment. How do I know if that suffering is normal suffering of being in this world or chastisement for something I've done. How do I know the difference? Answer, you can't. But you can. There's no direct line to tell you. So what do you do? Well, if I go through a period of severe migraines over a period of months, and it causes me to examine my life carefully before the Lord, and I think, I have been neglectful of my wife and cruel and harsh with her over the last few months. I can see that. I have been covetous with my money. And you confess those sins and resolve to do better. What was that? Were the migraines the Lord's chastisement? I don't know. But it's a good opportunity to take stock of your life at that moment in time. You can't draw a straight line. But whenever we endure any type of suffering, we should prayerfully ask the Lord if there is an area of our lives we need to repent of. And must also be completely prepared, unlike Job's comforters, unlike them, to accept that suffering in my life may be completely unconnected to any sin. Because you and I can't tell. That's the first thing. Not all suffering is chastisement, discipline. Second thing to say, and this is the point of the passage really, the second thing is this, you cannot, according to this writer, and the writer of the Hebrews expands, you cannot separate the Lord's discipline from his love. 
you have to bring the two of those together. I mean, it's obvious here, even more so when expanded on in uh, Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 10, 12. But the um, parents who love their children discipline them. Now, anyone who's a parent or met a child um, knows that when a child is disobedient, it is more work to get involved than to leave them. So the toddler demands a bag of sweets or demands sweets ten minutes before dinner and screams and yells and rages and it's much easier for an easier life. There you go. Much easier, much harder to say no and work through the stages. No, I've told you no. No, sit on that step. No, go to your room. It's much harder. I mean, it's a pain. It's tedious. Oh, we just went through this yesterday. Why are we doing it all again? It's tedious to go through discipline as a parent. But it's loving. It's not loving just to let them have whatever they want to give in. It's not for their good. I look back at my time as a school teacher. I have three saddest moments. I won't tell you all of them. But uh, uh, certainly the, what, number three uh, in the saddest moments as a school teacher was uh, a lad, Barnaby, and he uh, was uh, in his sixth form, um, taking A-levels, and he was a complete shambles. Two very high-flying parents, um, captains of industry both, uh, very rarely in the house. He went home, he and his uh, uh, brothers, there was, a, there was an au pair who cooked them, as far as I could tell, whatever they demanded on any particular night. Uh, and the, the pocket money they were given was ridiculous. So there he was, age 17, he'd go out, get drunk every weekend, take all sorts of uh, illicit substances, and was just going to completely tank uh, his um, his A-levels. Had no chance. So you have one of those miserable meetings, you call in the parents. I just even at the time thinking, this is slightly surreal. I'm 25, and I'm trying to explain to some 50-year-old, wildly successful people some pretty basic truths about bringing up a child here. But the, the, you know, I don't why is he going out so much at the weekend? Well, you know, he's got plenty of money. Where's he got his money from? Will we give it to him? Well, you could just not, and then he'd not be able to... It's a very basic thing. But the really sad moment was when this one, the lad turned to his parents and said, do you know what? Sometimes I really wish you cared enough just to ground me. At least you'd be involved then. Miserable, isn't it? It's miserable. What's he saying? So you're too busy doing your own thing. If you loved me, you'd discipline me. I'd, I'd enjoy that. At least it'd be some sign of recognition that I'm on your radar. The fact that you just don't care, you don't know what I eat, you don't know where I am, it's a lack of love. Don't pretend you're modern parents, enlightened. It's not, it's just a lack of love. Oh, it's very sad. And that's what the writer here is saying. So if we say we don't like the door, if, um, we don't want the Lord's discipline, or if we complain to him during our sufferings, it may be we're not asking for more love from him, but for less. I don't want you involved disciplining me. I don't want you so involved in my life. Whereas the writer says, no, look, don't, 
resent the Lord's discipline. Don't resent his rebuke. It's a, sh- it's a sign that he's involved in your life. He wants to shape you because he loves you. He wants to improve your life. Don't resent his rebuke. So there's three little things. Uh, here's, a, here's a pathway to wisdom. All things being equal, this is the best way to live, he says. If the roads are not flooded, here's the way you'll gain rewards, in, even in this life here and now. Internalize the Lord's character, trust his direction, submit to the Lord's uh, discipline. Push on with those things. But even then, you can sit there and think, but okay, but my progress down this path is a little faltering. It, it isn't always perfect. Uh, um, I'm not entirely sure I want my reward tied to my performance because it's... And of course, at that point, you think, well, actually, it is a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Or more wonderfully simple. Because in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do have the one who was perfect in his obedience, but wasn't rewarded. He got our discipline so that we could get his reward. So if you read through these verses, it's very striking when you apply them to Christ. Verse 1, he was the one who never forgot his father's teaching, kept his commands perfectly. And what happened to his life? It was cut short and he knew adversity. Verse 3, Jesus was the one who wore love and faithfulness, who had them written around the tablet of his heart. And what did he win? Well, the rejection of man. Or verse 5, he was the one who trusted wholeheartedly in the Lord with his heart. Were his ways straight? Were his ways straight? No, his path was twisted. It was tragic. Verse 7, he was the one who was who wasn't wise in his own eyes. He was the one who feared the Lord, who rejected evil. And what happened to his body? Health? No, he knew the torture of his body. He knew the crushing of his bones, not their nourishment. Verse 9, he was the one who honoured his father absolutely. But he knew disgrace and rejection. We fail to honour the Lord and trust him with all of our hearts. Jesus didn't. He succeeded. But he was punished so we could be rewarded. Now we read these verses, of course, with those new wonderful New Testament eyes. It doesn't undermine them. But it does mean when we read these things, we say, Father, we thank you for your Son who trusted when we fail. And knowing him, would we fix our eyes upon him and walk down this path, knowing it's the best way, the healthiest way for us to live now. And it is for our eternal hope. Would we keep our eyes upon him, your son? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word and we want to live this way, trusting in you. Change our hearts so we would. But Father, we know we can't grind that out just by sheer effort. And so we thank you for your Son, in not only whom is wisdom, but is in whom is our reward, even when we fail. So we thank you for him. Would we trust in him and knowing the reward that is ours because of him, 
would we trust you ever more deeply and walk this path of wisdom to the honour of your name. Amen.